Much of the music we dance to in clubs now was born of political struggle and alienation, but you wouldn't have guessed it from an average night out in the UK. From the disco to the grime scene, clubs have been spaces where marginalised bodies can, if only for the night, find an outlet. While the commercialisation of clubbing has diluted its subversive potential, clubs remain contentious spaces. They have rarely had a cordial relationship with the police. In 1994, the government added a clause to the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act targeting events playing music wholly or predominantly characterised by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats or rave music. The Met Police's Form 696, which promoters are required to complete before hosting events featuring DJs and MCs, is the clause's 21st century reincarnation and widely considered to be a grime shutdown. But the biggest threat to clubs isn't police, it's developers. Several high-profile clubs have fallen foul of them, Fabric in London, The Arches in Glasgow. These clashes have brought clubs into the battlefield of gentrification. Between 2005 and 2015, the number of UK clubs almost halved. And whilst rampant high-end property development and accompanying noise complaints are not the sole cause of this, they've contributed significantly. Now more than ever, clubs force us to confront the politics of space and what kinds of people are permitted to occupy it. But whatever it is that's choking the UK club scene, there's something there that people won't let go of without a fight. In London, there have been successful public campaigns to save beloved venues such as the Bussy Building in Peckham and the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. Sadiq Khan recently appointed a night czar. Though regrettable, the loss of club stalwarts has allowed new sounds and spaces to proliferate, helped by free and easy online promotion. So what is it that clubbing gives people that they so badly need? Is it simply pleasure or some kind of power? Here's Irvine Welsh's answer. We are social, collective fucking animals and we need to be together and have a good time. It's a basic state of being alive. Like, Welcome like, to episode like, three of the Inkling podcast. Like, like, clubbing. Like, 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 searching, like, searching. Joining me in this episode's feature are Nico Muntz, assistant curator at the Royal Collection Trust and the author of In This Club, and Hannah Ekus, freelance graphic designer and part of the Aphrodite Collective. I wanted to start off by asking you, Hannah, why you think queer nightlife has become such an important part of discussions about queer spaces. I do think it's always been a part of it, but queer nightlife has become more mainstream. But I think clubbing and going out has always been central and for a lot of people they've mostly been gay from Friday through Saturday because they've not had the chance to be gay with their family or to come out at it's probably become homogenous in different ways so it's become disparate in that it's moved all over London and there isn't 
particularly a gay presence in Soho anymore. And there certainly isn't really a lesbian presence. So it's all sort of moved out east to places like Shoreditch and Dalston and most recently Hackney Wick. But it's homogenous in that it still represents middle-class white gay males. When we started Aphrodite, it was about getting in between of that. So it's explicitly for queer women and their friends. Men can come, but it's good if they're attended or kept on a leash at all times. We play only music by women for women. All our DJs are women. We try and get as many female bar staff as we can. It's women to the front, femmes to the front. As gender identities are becoming more discreet in some ways, how do you both retain an identity for your night whilst also remaining intersectional? Yeah, sure. Well, it's always been a lesbian night and we have that on our posters, but we also have uh, little notes that say it's for uh, trans and non-binary women as well. From the very first one, we've had all sorts of people coming up with all sorts of presentations and we have gender neutral toilets and we have people with Aphrodite t-shirts or Aphrodite hats on so if anyone's harassed if anyone feels they're being chased in any way they can just come up to us and there's no quibble I'm a big butch lesbian I'm very fine with barring people and getting them out <laughs> I'm sure that's great fun on a Friday night <laughs> That brings me, I suppose, to my question for you, Neko, which was around this quote that you used in your essay from Richard Huelsenbeck, where he says, in this club, every man is chairman and every man can have his say. I mean, obviously, given what Hannah's just been talking about, there are some obvious question marks over the kind of gender power dynamic that Richard Huelsenbeck is highlighting here. Do you think there is something kind of problematic about the power dynamic gendered or otherwise of the club setting? I think it depends on the club a lot. You can have a classic kind of Magaluf style, lots of drunken men ogling and harassing young girls. There's a clear power dynamic, whereas you might have a kind of loved up, ecstasy-induced um, 6 a.m. Berlin scene where everyone's kind of holding hands. This quote kind of suggests that clubbing is quite a almost narcissistic or megalomaniacal experience. And I'm interested, do you feel that clubbing is about self-empowerment or do you think that really it's a collective experience? I'd say it was just as much collective as it is individual. I do think it's very different to daily life. Personally, uh, nighttime is always associated with uh, freedom and a testing of the boundaries. Hannah, do you feel like part of the reason that you perhaps became involved with Aphrodite was in order to create some sort of, not just space physically, but freedom for yourself and your friends. Yeah, definitely. I'm not someone who usually enjoys clubbing, and I definitely didn't at university because I went to Nottingham, and it's dominated by one club night that's called really? Ocean. You go past sort of 15 male bouncers <laughs> to get to a room where it's just men doing something called sharking, which is where they just go round in a circle, finding the drunkest girl possible so they can chat her up. But so I have many sore experiences. Part of Aphrodite is that we want people to have a different experience when they go out. Being out and being out are two unique 
experiences. A lot of venues, what they let people down on is that they haven't got harassment training or they haven't got solid staff. There's a high amount of turnover that we've definitely experienced and has been detrimental to our night. People don't feel safe even when they're at like a gay venue. We don't have like an explicit anti-harassment policy. I think it's all implied and I think... Most of the people who are going build up a bit of trust because we mostly advertise through word of mouth that if they have an incident, we're going to take care of it. When the demographic of your club is sort of 80% female anyway, there's definitely a different atmosphere and it's a lot safer Mm. and it's a lot more fun. In your article, Nico, you speak about how certain types of music, techno in particular, served a kind of political purpose. But then you also contrast this with a contemporary setting. I mean, I think you're referring generally to the oceans of this world, where it's essentially a hedonistic enterprise. Um, And I'm interested in whether you think it might be possible to do both. I think it's possible. And I think it's actually really expected on the London scene. Like the part of the pun of our name is that we have dyke in it, which is like a loaded term and like a political identity. But also... We pretty much only play Britney, so we're fairly apolitical in that respect, in that it's kind of a place that, like, if you are a full-time activist or you do have a job that's, like, in the third sector and is very straining, like, you can come to somewhere like the night I put on and just have an absolute whale of a time and kind of forget all of that. And there's always a section of the club that's reserved for DMCs, the deep, meaningful chats between (laughs) lesbians, where they put the world to rights if they really have to. That is, I suppose, the temptation to see 90s Berlin clubbing as intensely political and rarefied and Ocean, for example, as completely apolitical. Do you think that that's true? I've got a few different thoughts on this. I mean, I'm quite interested in the fact that nights, for instance, like yours, Hannah, will play very mainstream music. We were talking earlier about a similar night called Denim. They love playing very very mainstream music and they are well a night that comes out of drag performance i think the ethos surrounding that is a kind of queering of the mainstream so there's a definite political aspect to that and actually um the founder of denim amru he has a sort of theoretical arm to his actual performances which goes back to people like andy warhol and and pop art in the 60s But then a techno night nowadays would be an intensely apolitical kind of environment and situation where people would just go to completely lose themselves and and dance to um, very monotonous music. That classic underground music, which basically gave birth to avant-garde nights or underground kind of club culture, that kind of music is now really quite apolitical. So it's actually the nights playing mainstream music that are the political nights nowadays. The yeah. uh, music policy has always been like Bangers. pretty much just women, all wall to wall bangers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining a room lined with like sausage meat. Wall to wall bangers. That's the opposite of what I bought. <laughs> I suppose it is. You have a point, Nico, in that there isn't necessarily, perhaps you disagree, Hannah, but there isn't necessarily kind of political music. Genres in and of themselves aren't necessarily so political. Although, we were discussing earlier this Form 696 and the way that grime music and music of black origin is becoming the new political music, not necessarily because it in itself is making a political statement, though often it is, but because it's being victimised essentially by the police. 
perhaps this brings us to much broader questions, which I won't attempt to answer here, but they would be around organized politics um, versus the personal being political. For instance, choosing to eat something or wear something. That's a kind of eternal question, whether, you know, something that has an official political label on it is the only political thing that we can recognize or whether there's a kind of personal politics that happens on a much more daily, everyday level. I'm interested, Hannah, in in the kind of way that your club night has grown because you talk about how easy it is to advertise a club night. And so I'm interested in how you ensure that a club night like yours retains its kind of distinctiveness when anyone can join your Facebook event, anyone can come along, and how you define a niche for yourself in a a very open market well anyone can see what we put out there because it's the internet and we are listed on resident advisor and on time out we're around people people know about us yeah but if they turn up usually the venues we're at are like destination venues they are only really open on a friday and saturday and people go to them for specific nights they don't have regulars who sort of come every week and expect to see something and so when people come to the door they don't usually just follow the queue. Essentially, they're not just looking for a party, so they usually yeah. know that it's there. We pick people out in the queue a little bit if they stick out like a sore yeah. thumb. pick and on them. Yeah, and we tend to be like, do you know the name of the night? Have you RSVP'd on Facebook? And then we there are follow-up questions. Just, But you have to kind of judge it on their body language whether yeah. they're about to kick off or not. Yeah. And usually what are your follow-up not. questions? So I usually say, like, um, do you have any friends downstairs? Do you know anything about the night? And they're like, no, no, no. And then I usually just say, it's a gay night. And most of the time they're like, oh, okay, thanks. And then they go further down the street. Yeah. Or they're like, so you're saying we can't come in? And I'm like, yeah, I don't think you'll enjoy it, honey. I don't think it's for you. Yeah. <laughs> take a look. Take a look in the queue. <laughs> you're not yeah. going to fit in. I had a really funny one. No, it's just a very satisfying anecdote. I come out great in it. Four guys uh, come up to the door and they'd been in the queue for a while and I'd asked them if they knew the name of the night and they did. And they said they had friends downstairs and I asked them which friend and I happened to know them and I was like, oh, well, I know them really well. They wouldn't tell four straight boys to come here on their own. <laughs> And they were like, oh, well, they, they said they were going to come here. So I was like, can't we come in? Like, we've been waiting. Like, we've been good. Can we come in? And I was like, no, because it's it's one in, one out. And I file it in four straight boys. It's at the expense of the four gay women behind you. And they were like, oh, come on. Oh, come on. If it was like, if it was like a straight night, it was the other way around. And I was like, you're right, darling. I'm so sorry. This is perhaps the civil rights issue of our time. <laughs> and then these four girls in front just started basically catcalling them. And I was like... Darling, if you go downstairs, this is the reaction you're going to have. Do you really want that? And they quietly walked away. Wow. So, what like, poise. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you so, do come out well yeah, in that. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. So if you run an exclusive door policy and you really try and filter, it can often be quite fun. And if people sort of tweet about um, what has happened in the queue, if they like tell their friends about that, that's better advertising than we could ever pay for in any like mainstream gay magazine. Nico, how do you find out about nights that you go to? Is it just word of mouth? Or are you queuing up for nights that you don't know the name of? I wish that I just sort of walked around London in some sort of dreamy situationist way and, and just happened upon a, a loft party. But that doesn't really happen that much. There's a definite rise in kind of ticketing of nights and, you know, bought through Resident Advisor and Ticket Web or whatever. 
But that that wasn't always the case. You just know exactly what you're getting beforehand. There's a lack of uh, excitement um, and, and spontaneity, and yeah, that's connected with that. But that's a much bigger problem to do with you know everyone having maps on their phone and everyone knowing exactly how to get hold of each other at every single moment of the day. And you know, there's a there's a pinning down of life which is involved in that, which isn't going to go away overnight. as people who club feel like your appetite for clubbing is satisfied by London's clubbing scene? Um, There are closures that um, everyone's kind of mourning a bit at the moment. Things like passing clouds in Dalston, I'm not quite sure what the situation on that is at the moment, but that was a wonderful place. Kind of like, well, the upstairs bit at least was like someone's living room with lots of weird chairs. And that felt very truly a kind of different space. People definitely do vote with their feet, and if they're not being served by their community, they definitely set up their own thing. Like, there's a really good um, cabaret night, the Coco Butter Club, and that's black and uh, minority ethnic cabaret artists, drag artists. I do feel I've served my purpose with Aphrodite um, for getting what I want out of clubbing. But um, the kind of important thing is that it has longevity because there's a high amount of turnover with any sort of club, but particularly with like gay nights. They tend to only last for two years maximum. The only club nights that I know that have reached their um, two-decade mark is Club Carly and Ducky, and they've both served themselves quite well because they've had people who've got the time and the money and are willing to like be promoters for life, sort of, even if it doesn't necessarily advance their career, apart from... Amy LeMay is now night czar for Sadiq Khan, which is an absolute steal. It's certainly anything that I feel isn't being served in clubbing. Hopefully she'll just sort out in the next three to five years. <laughs> what would you like her as night czar to do? I would like her to be able to help foster better relationships between venues and promoters. So part of the ticketing culture is that there are so few venues now and they're all so nervous to put anything on that if you don't have an X amount of pre-sale tickets, they'll just cancel the night. They'll just quit their losses and put on something that's definitely going to sell out. It's so much harder now for new clubs to be starting out if they don't have good relationships with good venues who are willing to go the extra mile and actually make their spaces safer for people who might suffer harassment. Disabled women, trans women, women of Mm colour. Like What I would like for Amy to do is to make London just that much more safer. mentioned that people who run successful club nights are often the people who have the time but also the money and I'm interested in the money do you think that there is a kind of inequality in the in the types of club nights that are being put on because of the financial costs associated with it yeah definitely when we started Aphrodite most of the big queer nights were put on by Oxford graduates and it was a transplant of the Oxford scene in East London. When we started, we're people of various backgrounds and incomes, but I'm definitely a working class northern woman and wouldn't have been able to put on my own night if I'd not had a collective of other people who were willing to put up the same amount of cash. It can be really expensive. Like most venues want four or five hundred pounds deposit with a a two or three thousand pound minimum bar spend for a Friday or Saturday night. And that's for a 180 person club in East London that's 
grimy does not have toilet seats so i mean you've mentioned the idea of a collective but are there any other pieces of advice you would give to people daunted by the prospect of putting on a night because they think it's too expensive they don't think that they're the kind of people that can do it my advice would be force all your friends to come and charge them the most <laughs> and actually maybe a special t- friends yeah. rate yeah friends <laughs> that rate. is double yeah <laughs> and um actually maybe ticketing does help because at least if you've got some pre-sales, you've covered the deposit before you kind of have to put it down in a way you can sort of borrow against your own wages or your own salary and just really hold your nerve with it because it eventually will be like, all right, you'll pay your council tax on it, but you won't pay your rent. <laughs> I wonder what you guys think the future of clubbing is. I think it might be quite difficult because the generation sort of below us, they're all very straight edge. A quarter of 18 to 20 year olds don't drink at all. So I think as soon as they get to 25, they're going to go absolutely mental. Fingers crossed for you. I like the idea of more elderly people clubbing. Yeah. more when I'm old, you know, I hope I still listen to the odd house tune and tap my shoes and I'd like somewhere that I can tap my shoes with other old people. In tap shoes or just normal shoes? Uh, probably really padded shoes. I also quite like the idea of day clubs, although I I think that they're they're just doomed to failure. My very um, tiny experience of, of of going to something like a sort of day night party where um the daytime is just frankly odd. At some point, I mean, you'd want to brush your teeth, wouldn't you? Like after that long. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's a it's a one way ticket to uh to 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 the flu basically, or at least a cold. Too right. But, um, yeah, I'd I'd like there to be perhaps a lunchtime club where you know you pick up your pret and you head on down to the uh, lunchtime club for a little bit of half an hour of rave and 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 then back to the office for the email check too right man i feel like we need that release whether that's in the middle of the night in berlin or at lunchtime in the city thanks for joining us Nabiha Iqbal must have one sweet LinkedIn. Having picked up a master's in African history from Cambridge, Iqbal was called to the bar in 2012 and went on to practice human rights law in South Africa, specialising in women's rights. After returning to the UK, she realised her musical sideline was gaining momentum, so quit law to go full-time producer and DJ under the alias Throwing Shade. She's since been prolific. House of Silk is Iqbal's most recent of four EPs, fusing 80s synths 
with breathy vocals to, according to an interview with ID, span five emotional states. Waiting for your touch. Entice me with your lies. Unlock me. It's an abstraction, but one the EP earns. Each track has the dimensions of a clamshell. You spend three minutes totally inside it. The spatial dimensions of Iqbal's music, the way it makes room, seems an apt metaphor for her intrusion onto the music scene. Nabiha Iqbal is a brown woman in a white man's world and is making herself at home. I took my name, Throwing Shade, from the film Paris is Burning. Watching that film coincided with my first trip to New York, so it had like this special importance for me. And plus, I just really liked the phrase, Throwing Shade. I just liked how it sounded, so I decided to use it as my moniker. I didn't realise that in America now it has really negative connotations, that it meant like talking dirty about someone or anything like that. But if that is one of the interpretations, then I'm happy with it because I do want to come across as a strong, independent female <laughs> doing my thing. As a female, working in this area you have to have you know a seriousness about you in terms of your attitude towards your work which I think men can forego you've got to maintain an air of professionalism obviously music is fun but it's also my career and my work and I always have to remember that When I first started playing, when I first started DJing, you know, I'd always be happy to get a gig because really I started DJing before I was working as a musician full time. So most of your requests to perform come through friends and friends of friends and it's always good to play. But then once you decide that you're going to make a career out of it, then you do have to be a lot more tactful with how you place yourself and what kind of shows you do. It's all about supply and demand as well. You have to balance out the sort of excitement to just take on every single gig you get with the idea that actually, you know, you have to plan things out a bit more and be a bit strategic about what you do. For me, London is always going to be my favourite city because I'm a Londoner born and bred and really I just think it's the best place in the world. There's so much freedom and there's so much enthusiasm and energy here and it's always really good to play. But that's not to say that I haven't had amazing experiences in other cities as well. I think like from an ethnographical point of view, it's really interesting to travel to other countries and be immediately immersed into their nightlife scene. Um, and play a show there. You're not travelling to that place 
just like an average tourist because as soon as you arrive you're meeting people who already know loads about the music scene and they're kind of like taking you to the heart of it so it's good to just see how people from different countries react to your music and uh, react to you as an artist and what kind of reception you get from them it gives you a really good sort of microcosmic idea of what the youth culture of that city or country is like. It's always quite an intense experience. Sometimes you might only be in one place for one night and you might be traveling from another gig in another country. Okay, I'm not gonna lie that it's really fun and I feel so lucky and privileged to be doing what I'm doing, but it's also quite exhausting and intense and that's something that maybe people don't see from the outside. With all the travel that you do, you need to be really fit Especially, you know, you like if you've done a really long flight, I'm sure everyone can identify with this, and you get off the plane and then you just want to chill and you don't really want to talk to anyone, but obviously you're being greeted by the promoters that are so excited to have you and they're really glad that they've booked you to come and play in their city. So you have to be like, hey, yeah, like you have to be really chipper. And I always try and do that because I never want to come across like I'm in a bad mood or something or ungrateful, but it just takes a lot out of you. There's definitely an additional degree of expectation when it comes to being a female producer or DJ. I mean, you only have to look at Facebook or YouTube comments on a girl DJ set or something where you could just get all these guys who don't know anything about anything, but they think that they are like the world experts on DJ skills, giving their unrequested opinions about things. When you're actually performing, you know that there's going to be those sort of people trying to like analyse your performance. But what you have to do is you just have to block that out because the haters are always outnumbered by the people who are just there because they're into your music and they want to have a good time. undergraduate studies and ethnomusicology taught me to be really open-minded towards music and therefore also towards cultures, different approaches to what music means to people. I've always loved music and it's always been my favourite thing but growing up here in London all the music that I was exposed to was just basically you know western music but it didn't really go beyond that until I went to SOAS and then it just makes you realise that there's so much out there and music as a force is so important in every single culture and to every type of people, special kind of power. Really, I don't drink and I don't do any drugs or anything and it's just the music. So when I go out, if I'm having a good time because the music's good, you really don't need anything else. When I'm DJing, I try and create that feeling because I feel like so much music today is just boring and it's not made with like soul or, you know, it's hard to explain, but it's just made in a very formulaic way. It's very rigid and they're just trying to get loads of radio play or make a song that sounds like another song that's done really well. I just don't want to fall into that category with my own music. I just want people to listen to it and I want it to like transport them to maybe remind them of things or make them imagine different things. Just something rather than nothing. Thank you.
The Inkling Podcast is exec produced by Helen Charman and me, Rivka Brown. Thanks to our wickedly talented Phil Barrett and something else for hosting and recording the episode. And to our wonderful guests, Nabiha Iqbal, who also contributed music to this week's show, Hannah Ekes and Nicholas. Thank you.